Support for WPR comes from Viterbo University. With the D.B. Reinhardt Institute for Ethics in Leadership, dedicated to offering virtual lectures with speakers who inspire. More at viterbo.edu slash ethics. The following program is pre-recorded. From Buck Studio at Wisconsin Public Radio, this is Zorba Pastor on Your Health. I'm Tom Clark, here again with Family Doc Zorba Pastor to talk with you about what's new in healthy living, share some down-to-earth advice and great lifestyle tips to help you get the most out of life. If you have a question for the good doc, the number to call is 800-462-7413. And along with your calls, we have some topics to talk about, Zorba. Yes, long COVID. Who gets it? Who doesn't get it? And how risky is it? How long does it last? And then we're going to talk about meditation and gut microbes that meditating may check the, may change the gut microbes in your body that may actually improve your health. Very, very interesting Yeah, research. sounds interesting. What's our special recipe today? Broccoli rice casserole. Now, as you know, one of our presidents, George W. Bush, said, I hate broccoli. Yeah. But a lot of people actually like broccoli. If you like broccoli, and I happen to like broccoli, you will love this recipe for broccoli rice casserole. And I know broccoli is Tom's favorite Vegetable. George Bush was right. <laughs> okay, let's get to the phones. 800-462-7413. That's 1-800-462-7413. Our first caller joins us from Marshall, Wisconsin. Hi. Hello, how are you doing, Zorba? Good, very good, thanks. How, how can, can we, we help? help? <laughs> well, I'll tell you. I've got a couple things going on. Um, they're saying it's chronic bronchitis. Oh, and then mm-hmm. I got COVID back, I think, before anybody even knew what it was. Mm-hmm. Very sick mm-hmm. here in our family. Mm-hmm. And a couple months later, I got blood clots in both lungs. Oh, terrible. And almost bit the dust. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'll tell you, ever since then, I've had the bad cough. Mm-hmm. And they diagnosed it as chronic bronchitis. Yeah. Were you a were you a were you a smoker? No. No. You were not no. a smoker. Asthma as a no. kid? Did you have asthma as a kid? No. No, did no. not have. How old are you? Seventy five. Seventy five. So so they said you've got chronic bronchitis. Been going on for a long time. And a non smoker without asthma. That's a bummer. Yeah, and then mm-hmm. what happens is my oxygen level will drop down to like eighty. Oh. And I'll, that's and I'll cough and cough and that's, cough and that's I get really up. low. Are you on yeah, oxygen? No. Are you on no. oxygen all the no. time? No. Uh-uh. Are you on oxygen no. at bedtime? None. Uh-huh. Nope. Mm-hmm. So what happens is I'll get the, all that phlegm up, mm-hmm. and it goes back to normal. Mm-hmm. So Got they, it. to me, I don't know if they ever even really figured out what it was, but mm-hmm. now I think from the coffin, they did some X-rays because mm-hmm. I'm get di- uh, yeah. get uh, dizzy and lightheaded, mm-hmm. and. Uh, short of breath, walking upstairs. Mm-hmm. My right diaphragm is totally paralyzed. I oh, said, uh-huh. "Yeah, that's, so, a, that's a bummer too." So that reduces your ability to take some deep breaths. A lot of yes, stuff going on. Yes. Uh-huh. yes. Are you on any inhalers at all? Yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you know, I don't even know if they do any good. <laughs> to be honest mm-hmm. with you. Yeah. So, so how can I help you today? Well, basically, what I was wondering is, have you heard of the? The surgery that they do for that diaphragm. Well, there's no. It's not. There's no surgery to actually get your diaphragm to work. So there's no. No, there isn't. There's no. no. There's no surgery to do it. The diaphragm is paralyzed. It's paralyzed up there. It's a neurological thing. Uh, it occurs with people. Sometimes people live with it. and They live with it for many years. I had a patient yeah. who lived with it for 25 years. Uh, eventually, got ill from other things, and then that really bothered him. Yeah. So there's yeah. that diaphragm is just it's, it's just not going to work. But for well, people said- with severe COPD, there mm-hmm. can be surgery where they actually remove part of the lung, and then people breathe better. That's a different type of surgery. Gotcha. They actually take yeah. part of the lung, remove it, and for some people, that can be a game changer. Are are they considering that? Well, they said something about tacking it. Mm-hmm. 
That's what Bringing they do. Bringing the right. diaphragm down right. and packing it. Right. So the, the diaphragm may be interfering with that, and then sometimes they actually remove part of the lungs. So, uh, mm-hmm. so sometimes yeah. that surgery works well. So are you thinking about having that done? Yeah, I, I was thinking about it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm doing the blow thing right now okay. to try to, to – I told them I'd do that for six weeks. Mm-hmm. Good idea. Or you blow Good into idea. that deal. You bet. And, you blow yeah, into that little pretty, ball and try to keep that ball up. Right. Yep. That mm-hmm. that thing. Yeah. Yep. When you you know when you're sucking in, yeah, no, it no. has different That's ports, right. and it's real right. hard. Right. You get tired in a quick you hurry. You do. Well, you're exercising your lungs. So yep. so the long answer and the short answer is number one, keep blowing that thing and see if you can do it without the surgery. Yep. But the That's other answer is for some people that surgery can be a game changer. And that yep. can be very useful. They don't go back to normal, but all of a sudden they breathe and their oxygen does not go down to 80. That's pretty scary. If your oxygen is going down yeah. to 80, you're not getting much in your body and you can run no. other severe problems. You can have a stroke. You can have a heart attack. You can die yep. when your yep. oxygen goes down that much. Yeah. And then ultimately, yeah. if you're debating about the surgery and you're wondering whether or not to do it, I always tell people, get a second opinion from 100 miles away. In other words, head off to Milwaukee, say, look, check with your insurance and say, I want a second opinion. Insurance companies with Medicare almost always pay for it. Go to Freighter or another good hospital in Milwaukee Mm -hmm. with all your information. Uh, If you're around Madison, it's on Epic. And so they've got good information. They can look at all that stuff and you get a second opinion. But yes, the answer is yes, that surgery can be a game changer. So. Awesome. So, Sounds good, great. Good luck to you. Keep blowing into that Amen. machine, sucking and blowing. Amen. <laughs> All right. Amen. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks Bye-bye. for the call. 800-462-7413 is our number. Uh, before our next calls, Zorba, most long COVID effects revolve within a year after a mild infection? Yeah, they resolve within a, they resolve within a year. So this, you know, we're worried about long COVID, and many people are worried about long COVID. A lot of things are associated with mainly fatigue, breathing difficulty, loss of smell. That's a big thing because loss of smell also means loss of taste. Uh, you know, we taste sugar, salty, sweet, and sour with our tongue, but everything else actually comes through our olfactory system with our nose. Difficulty concentrating, lots of things with long COVID. And uh, and they basically, this was a, a study in the UK. Uh, they looked at the population, estimated one and a half million people in the UK long COVID. They followed them. They have got one medical system in the UK. It's called the National Health System so they can get their records. And they looking behind and they found that, that really most people most people, the vast majority, greater than 95% with long COVID, actually within a year, their symptoms resolved, except for one group of people that many of them, some of them, not many of them, but if you looked at the group of people who continued to have long COVID after one year, it was those who never got vaccinated. Mm. In other words, the risk of continuing with long COVID are in those people who never had the initial vaccination series. Now, you know, here it is. We're how many years into COVID? I mean, many years into COVID. And we still have people who've never had the vaccine. But most people in the country, the vast majority, have had the vaccine. So the vast majority, if you get COVID and you have symptoms, you can be pretty much assured that even if it's going there, that you're not going to get long COVID, that over time you're actually going to get better. For, but for those people who still believe that the vaccine is hooey, that it's not worthwhile. And we now have different vaccines. We have the mRNA, uh, the messenger RNA vaccine, and then we have other vaccines that are not messenger RNA. But for those who have not been vaccinated, it's still a good time to get vaccinated and you will reduce your risk that you're actually going to get long COVID. Now, the present strain of COVID is highly infectious, highly infectious. But if you look at those people who end up in the hospital, there are fewer people in the hospital. Ultimately, uh, you know, more than 80 or 90% are older people who never got vaccinated, you know, but there are people who get long COVID who are younger and they get fatigued and they have brain fog. You don't want to get it. And it's just like getting the polio vaccine and the tetanus vaccine Mm -hmm. and the whooping cough vaccine. I mean, the time has come to sort of pull up our stakes, get rid of the politics behind vaccination. You know, we've got 5% of the people who are, who are truly religious anti-vaxxers in their religion. In other words, they're anti-scientific, they're Mm anti-vaxxers. They're okay. They're, you know, put them in one spot. But for many of the people who didn't get the vaccine, they just didn't do it. Either they're lazy or they just didn't want to do it or they didn't get to it. And that's why I say to people, you know what? Wake up, smell the coffee, 
get vaccinated because you'll run a decreased risk, 95 to 98% chance you will never get long COVID. And nobody wants COVID. Hmm. Really interesting. Yeah. 800-462-7413 is our number. That's 1-800-462-7413. We have a voicemail now, Zorba, from Youngstown, New York. My question is, in terms of longevity, I've noticed that firstborn children seem to outlive in number of years their siblings. Has there been any study done to determine what the reason might be? I speculate that it's the way children are raised from infancy, that the brain is hardwired to deal with stress differently from firstborn to second, third, and fourth, and that the firstborn child tends to stress less because the mother dotes on this first child in such a way that the child stresses less. Then this child goes through life dealing with stress much differently, and as a result, their life lasts longer. Thank you. Sounds like a great theory, doesn't it? <laughs> now, I'm a firstborn child. I'm a firstborn child. I'm also the lastborn child because I'm an only child. Yeah. So, <laughs> Me too. And you're, and you're a firstborn child. Yeah. So, Mona, so do, how do we deal with stress? Do we deal with stress better because we're firstborn? <laughs> I, I doubt it. <laughs> well, first of all, maybe the firstborn live longer because they're firstborn and the others are born later. It's very interesting. Not really. Obviously, I don't know if that's actually the case. I mean, I haven't looked and seen. I really don't know whether or not firstborn live longer. Clearly, there are different issues with the firstborn child. I mean, parents, I'm a parent of four kids. With the firstborn, you wonder exactly, you know, what's going on? What are you doing? Is this the right thing? The secondborn child is, well, you know, they're crying. You know, I know, you know, <laughs> yes. you know, you know they're crying. They're fed. Their diapers change. You know, they're warm. Uh, they're just crying. So with the firstborn, you think there's always a reason. Quite often there's not a reason. They're just, I don't know, they're just crying. I have noticed one thing. Firstborn, because recently we had a, a loved one who was, uh, who was in a skilled nursing facility. And I noticed that the people who came in to see other people in the skilled nursing facility were often the firstborn. Because hmm. there was a woman... Uh, who was going to see her mother. Her mother was like 94, and she came in almost every night. And this woman was one of 10 children, and she was the firstborn. And when she came in to see her, she said, oh, yeah, it's my mom. I have to take care of her. 10 so, children? 10 children. <laughs> 10 children, 10 children. That's a lot. And this woman was 94. That woman, you know, she was 94 and made it through 10, made it through 10 children. There were lots of jokes around that, believe me, and I won't, Talk about those jokes involved because this is public radio. Nonetheless, nonetheless, it was the firstborn that actually went in. So uh, there is some responsibility more because often the firstborn takes care of the secondborn. So, but I don't know if there's really any longevity. But I found it a very interesting call, very interesting, speculative, interesting information. What do you think about it, Tom? I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting, too. Uh, before we take a break now, Zorba, throughout the history of medicine, we've seen countless contraptions and elixirs claiming to cure ailments and professing miraculous health benefits. So let's wade into the murky past of medical quackery in the segment we call Quacking Up with Dr. Zorba. Quack it up! Okay, Zorba. This one might get weird, uh -huh. but tell us about Dr. John Brinkley. All right, spoiler alert. Before we go on, there may be some graphic information here. So if young children are listening to the show, there won't be any bad words on here. But if they've ever dissected a frog in biology class, we may be talking about some things that are very similar to this. It will last for about a minute. So it's time for a potty break for those people who do not <laughs> want to listen about this. So in 1917, there was a guy named John Brinkley. Yes, boys and girls, a guy named John Brinkley who worked and was a doctor at the Swift Meat Packing Company in Kansas. He went into private practice. Now, John spent $500 
to get a diploma from the Eclectic Medical University of Kansas City, Missouri. Not exactly a licensed medical school, but nonetheless, in those days in Kansas, you could practice license by simply paying $500. My, oh, my. How medical school has increased in terms of how much it costs. But this was a diploma bill. And John became very interested in men who could not have sex. In other words, men who in those days were called impotent. Mm -hmm. And he started looking at a French doctor who started using the crushed testicles of young dogs and guinea pigs and actually injecting them into men. Now, for the men who may be listening to it, imagine having your testicles injected into by somebody with a needle. You can imagine, boys and girls, that this was a very uncomfortable thing. But this French doctor claimed that it increased sperm production. Then another doctor said, we should do vasectomies on men who cannot have sex because we're wasting testosterone on the production of sperm. So that particular doctor was actually doing vasectomies on men, thinking that that would increase their ability to have sex. As we know, that actually decreases your ability to have sex. Nonetheless, let's go on to Brinkley. Brinkley and to work, he took goat gonad testicles and started spending, he started charging $750 per transplant, which in today's dollars would probably be three to $4,000 and taking goat testicle and injecting it into a man's testicle. And he had a farmer who could not have sex with his wife. That farmer got injected with goat testicle, started having sex with his wife, and that produced a baby boy. And that baby boy ended up making Dr. Brinkley rich because many men started coming to him to have their testicles injected with goat testicles. Did it work all the time? Of course not. This is the (laughs) quacking up section. You know something? We know 100 years later that Viagra works much better than goat (laughs) testicle injection. Quack, quack, quack. Do you have an example of medical quackery to contribute to the show? Just send us an email at Zorba at WPR.org. And by the way, what sort of a sound does a goat make? I don't have any idea. Neither do I. We have more of your calls coming up. Zorba will answer more of your emails and we'll be cooking up a tasty casserole. All that coming up on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRX. Tom Clark here with Family Doc Zorba Pastor on Zorba Pastor on Your Health. 800-462-7413 is our number if you have a question for Zorba. But Zorba, before our next call, broccoli rice casserole. Oh, I just can tell how disgusting you find this. Is it the word casserole or is it the word rice or is it broccoli? You don't like broccoli? Who likes broccoli? Well, George Bush doesn't like broccoli. We know that. It was was a famous enough statement so that we remember one of his statements was, I hate broccoli. Anyway, let's do this. No, no, no. Let's go on on to broccoli. One of the cruciferous, this is a cruciferous vegetable. Broccoli, cauliflower, they're good for you. They're really good for little kids. Little kids like broccoli because they like them. Do you guys, do your kids like broccoli? Believe it or not, yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. And breast. Yeah, it's thumb. Yeah, because it's fun. You get to hold it. You get to dip it. You get to play with it. Now, yeah, but you have to eat it too. You, know, you have, definitely have to eat it. Now, did your mother ever make broccoli? Um, no. No. 
My mother never – I didn't have broccoli until I was in college. No. I have no idea why. I don't think bro- – I don't remember seeing – well, I, I mean I shopped with my mom, but she did the shopping. But broccoli was not a popular food in the 50s. Actually, when you think about it, the food in the 50s was pretty bad. I mean we had canned peas all the time. Let's, uh, do, let's do this and have get Have you guys it. ever had canned peas? We just bought a whole like crate of canned peas from Costco, and I think we've had one can so far. One can. That's right. You know something? By the time your kids go to college, that's when you'll finish the canned peas. That's right. That's 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 the let's, problem with let's, canned let's, food. Let's do this broccoli all right, all right, recipe all right, before. All right. Back yeah, okay. back to broccoli. Yeah. Okay. Start out with. Three cups of broccoli florets. Three cups broccoli florets. In other words, you you get rid of you get rid of the stem. Okay. Mm-hmm. A tablespoon of extra virgin olive oil. Big tea, extra virgin olive oil. Eight mushrooms sliced. Any kind of mushrooms you want. Eight mushrooms sliced. Half a cup of diced yellow onion. Half a cup diced yellow onion. Half teaspoon of grated garlic. Half a little tea, grated garlic. One and a half teaspoons of fresh thyme. One and a half teaspoons fresh thyme. Are you you tired yet of, of repeating this? We've got, we got a lot of other things we're putting Let's in. Let's just this. move along. Okay, we're moving. <laughs> You're not bored yet. Uh, three quarters of a teaspoon of smoked paprika. Three quarters teaspoon smoked paprika. One and a half tablespoonfuls of flour. Tablespoon and a half of flour. A half, one and a half cups of milk, low-fat milk, but any milk you have is fine. One and a half cups of... Milk? You tired yet? Any more tired? Let's just keep it's, going. It's kind of a, a little curmudgeon, curmudgeon when it comes to this recipe. Just keep going so you yeah. can finally finish it and go to sleep. How much right? more of this is <laughs> half Half cup of shredded cheddar cheese. Half a cup shredded cheddar cheese. Half cup of shredded manchego cheese. What's that? That uh, It's another cheese. Okay, half a cup of that. <laughs> Half a cup of another cheese. It can be a different cheese. What's Montego okay. cheese? You've never had Montego cheese? Nothing I know of. You. Where were you brought up? Whitefish Bay? They didn't have Montego cheese there. Yeah. Two and a half cups of cooked brown rice. You tired yet? Two and a half <laughs> cups of cooked brown rice. Half cup of plain low-fat Greek yogurt. Half a cup of plain low-fat <laughs> Greek yogurt. Salt and pepper. S&P. So how many of these? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. We've got like 15 different things in this recipe. Yeah, and none of them were that. None of them sound good. <laughs> All right. All right. You got the rest. You got to yeah. get everything together if you yeah. want to make it. This is not a recipe that Tom is going to make. And Monica might make it by that mm-hmm. time. Preheat the oven at 350. Then in a large skillet with a lid over medium heat, add the broccoli florets, half cup of water, cover it, let them steam for three to five minutes until they're bright green and crisp. Remove them. Put them onto a plate. Drain the water. So in other words, you got the broccoli in there. Now you're going to make the part of the casserole. Olive oil in the skillet. Heat it over medium heat. Add the onion, mushroom, salt, and pepper. Saute to three to five minutes and then add the garlic for a minute or so. Smoke paprika, thyme, saute another minute or two till the garlic, garlic starts to smell. Sprinkle flour over everything. Mix it around until you no longer see streaks of flour. Then pour the milk in. So what you're doing is you're getting the, the flour in the oil. Very important because otherwise the mil- otherwise it's going to clump up. Then pour the milk in, stirring it over time, whisking it until the sauce appears to thicken. Then add the broccoli, the brown rice, half the cheese into the skillet. Remember your brown rice is cooked. Stir it, everything together. Remove it and then heat, stir in the Greek yogurt. Top off the casserole with the cheese, put it in the oven for 15 to 20 minutes, then remove the lid, bake it for another five minutes. Now, for people who like casseroles, this is actually quite a delicious casserole. And the first time you make it, you may make a mistake. Specifically, if you're not careful with the cheese, the cheese is going to burn. So you got to be very careful when you're actually doing it. And once again, it seems like a lot of work because this particular recipe is a lot of work. (laughs) And if you'd like a copy... Guess where to get it? Um, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Go to zorbapastor.org. Oh, yeah. Zorbapastor.org. That's right. Or you can find us on Facebook and you can see Tom and then you can see pictures that I am periodically posting of my past life. Eight hundred four six two seven four one three is our number. One eight hundred four six two seven four one three. 
Now, Zorba, let's hear from a listener in Knoxville, Tennessee. Hi. Hi, Tom. How can we help? Listen, I have had bad sinus problems, a history of them for years. Ears stopped up, nose stopped up, headache. So far this year, I've been on like four antibiotics, <clears throat> two two steroids. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And you can tell mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm still not well. Right, uh, right. Is there any help for people that have sinus problems annually? All these antibiotics going into my body and And they're not, not doing me. much. They're not doing much. No. That's what it sounds like. So how long have you had <clears throat> sinus trouble like this? Go back on my books. Years for years, for years, years. For years, yeah. Yes. And do you you don't do you smoke cigarettes? No. Okay, because that's that's a risk factor. Do you have allergies to other things? Allergies like in the summer at all? No, I was um, tested for allergies by uh, ENT. Mm-hmm. This was in. 2015, and they said I was allergic to three grasses, nine trees, three moles. Got it. Uh, it. But since then, Mm -hmm. I was tested um, by an allergist at the request of my internist, Mm -hmm. and he said I was allergic to only two trees in the spring, so who do you believe? Well, well, an allergy testing, let me tell you, allergy testing is intermittent. Who do you believe? The answer is somewhere in between. It's either one or the other or a little bit of one, a little bit of the other. But if they coincide to a few things, the real issue is what do you do about it? So do you, let me ask you a few questions. Number one, do you take a nasal steroid nasal spray every day? I do. Do you use a neti pot? I've been using um Something like it. Something yeah. like it, because that that's that's very that's very important too. Um, how do you sleep at night? Very well. Very well. When you have symptoms and you take antibiotics, do they do anything for you at all? Just a little. It seems like it's kicking me back on my feet. Mm-hmm. But then maybe two days later, I'm, I don't feel good again. You don't feel good again. Okay. And then do you get this every year at a certain time or is it, is it seasonal or does it, or is it really continuous? No, it's seasonal. It usually starts in November, Mm -hmm. but this year it started, I think it was just allergies in September Uh and then it went on into a sinus infection. Mm -hmm. So it's seasonal, comes every year. So something's kicking it off. It might be the dry air inside your house, in which case you have to increase the humidification inside the house. It might be something in the house that you're allergic to. Are you taking antihistamines every day? Yes, I was trying to look up the name. Uh-huh. Is it Astelin mm-hmm. antihistamine? Astel? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's one of the sprays that I, I use. Mm-hmm. And the, the other one, I can't think of the name Flu- of it. Fluticasone nasal spray. It's a steroid nasal spray. Okay. Do you take yes. uh, uh, Muconolist? Which is an anti, another like an allergy type pill. It's not an antihistamine. Muconolist. You take no, that. I've never heard of it. Okay. No. So one of the other things you want to take, you want to take. It's they're called mast cell stabilizers, and they are another mechanism where they block IgE. It's called IgE, and there are a bunch of different drugs that are actually produce these, that are actually very, very good. So Mastel stabilizers are one of the things you're going to want to look at to see if that makes a difference. Are you going to an allergist and trying drugs such as that and chromalin sodium, which is another thing you can use? I'm still on um, mass stabilizer. <laughs> right. But Mastel stabilizers are other drugs. There are a whole class of drugs that you can also use that may be useful for you. So I've got a couple of suggestions. Number one. You're taking the prescription nose spray, stick on that. Number two, you're taking antihistamines or that over-the-counter? No, they're both. They're both. They're both prescriptions. Okay, take that every day. Number three, talk to your allergist about being on a mast cell stabilizer. That's another thing that can be useful that works like an antihistamine, okay? Number four, are you taking a drug such as famotidine for your stomach? No, I'm taking um, pantoprazole. Okay, pantoprazole. Famotidine 
is an H2 blocker and it works almost like an antihistamine for some people with chronic sinus infections. So if you take 20 to 40 milligrams of famotidine at bedtime, you can get that over the counter. That may also help this histamine response. I don't think you have sinus infections. I think what you're having is an overreaction of your histamine system. And that's what you've got to work on with an allergist. My guess is this is a histamine response, and you want to get an allergist who you can relate to that gives you the full course. There are a number of other drugs that you are not taking that are antihistamine-type drugs. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for sharing this with us. Dr. Zorba, thank you so much. You're most welcome. Thank you so much for taking my call. We've listened to you since our boys were little, and they're men now. Well, thank you. Thank you, and thank you for these words, kind words. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Yeah, we appreciate that call at 800-462-7413. Now let's hear from Melissa in Buffalo, New York. I have a question. When I eat fruit, my uh, fingers cramp. Is that uh, too much calcium or what? Or is that something foreboding that can happen or is happening? i just like an answer to that. Thank you. You know, that's kind of an interesting question. I can't, I mean, first of all, you know, fruit has a lot of potassium. So, uh, you know, there's some potassium in there. Uh, But there may be other things that are going on. I mean, fruit is sweet. It's a specific thing. You might be, you know, she might be setting herself up up for that. I don't think there's, there's anything, one thing in the fruit that's actually doing it. And then the question is, what kind of a cramp? I mean, is it a hand cramp or, you know, another cramp? And then is it different kinds of fruits? So if, if I had that problem, I would try different fruits and I would see whether or not one fruit is doing it. You know, is it a banana that's doing it? Is it an apple? Is it citrus? You know, because we know that citrus certainly does certain things in the stomach. Some people cannot tolerate citrus fruits. So I think I would look at the fruit and determine that. But I don't think it's one thing with Within the fruit that's causing the problem. One eight hundred four six two seven four one three is our number. One eight hundred four six two seven four one three. But before we take a short break, Zorba, let's check in with your favorite do-gooders. Oh wow! Oh wow! Oh wow! The grammar police. <laughs> oh no! It's the grammar. Okay, Zorba, the following email came to us from Dean in Spokane, Washington, who writes, Dear Dr. Zorba and Tom, I am a long-time listener who really enjoys your show on KPBX here in Spokane. I recently caught your segment on the Grammar Police discussing statistics. Well, I have another statistic for you. Approximately 99.8% of the grammar police need to get a life. (laughs) Keep up the good work. Hooray, hooray. (laughs) Finally, someone after my own heart. (laughs) Do you think the grammar police should be defunded? Let us know by posting on our Facebook page, or you could always send us an email at Zorba at WPR.org. More of your calls to come, another interesting topic to discuss, and Zorba will be answering more of your emails, all coming up on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRX. Tom Clark here with Family Doc Zorba Pastor on Zorba Pastor on Your Health. 800-462-7413 is our number. But Zorba, before our next call, deep meditation may alter gut microbes 
for better health. Mm, really interesting, interesting stuff. So, uh, first of all, this is an article published in the Journal of General Psychiatry. So, they looked at gut microbes. So, the more and more research we do, the more that we find that the microbes that live in our gut, these are commensurate organisms that live with us, may affect our health. I mean, for years, we didn't talk about it. We didn't do any work on it because nobody likes to talk about poop and nobody likes to do any experiments about poop. But we now know that what lives in our gut, especially in our colon, that's basically in our poop may actually affect us, may affect us psychologically, may affect us physiologically. So Mm. this particular study looked at Tibetan monks who practice deep meditation on a regular basis. And they looked at their neighbors around Tibetan temples uh, and looked at at a number of things. They looked at gut organisms in monks and discovered that that, uh, Tibetan monks who practiced sort of deep meditation and then they looked at other Tibetans who had a very similar food. In other words, the food they ate, the food that the secular people ate in the same area were the same. So you have Tibetan monks who are meditating and then you have Tibetans who are living right around there. They're eating momos. They're eating the same type of rice, the same type of food. And they looked at their basically the organisms that live in the gut and lo and behold, the Tibetan monks had completely different organisms, that they had a predominance of other uh, organisms in their gut that may actually affect them. So one of the questions they asked looking at this in a sort of an analysis is um, as we go into a deep meditation, we know meditation can be useful for people with PTSD, can be useful for anxiety. We know that people that meditate on a regular basis, some studies have shown that they may have uh, an improvement in their ability to fight disease, an improvement, for instance, when they get a flu vaccine, they appear to have a greater response to the flu vaccine. Maybe this is also a affecting their gut in terms of the organisms, the other organisms that are growing there, the bacteria. And that's why I find this study so fascinating that how we think, how we live, whether or not we meditate, whether or not uh, you know we engage in deep meditation may not just affect us psychologically, but may affect us physiologically in our, what our gut is. And then we believe that the gut actually may affect our brain. There's a theory that the gut organisms that live us can make affect our are basically our mood. There's a gut-brain access that may affect the immune system, hormonal signaling, stress responses, all through something called the vagus nerve, which really is responsible for the parasympathetic nervous system, which really oversees a whole variety of functions in our body. So I think the bottom line answer is for anyone who is anxious, who anyone who is not anxious, to anyone who believes that they want to improve their lifestyle. Engaging in five or 10 minutes of meditation on a daily basis may improve your gut health, and that may also improve your mental health. Interesting, but you say may, uh, may not too. Well, that's it. You know, all of this research is sort of conjectural. You know, it's all, you know, difficult to actually put a hand on. You have Tibetan monks. They don't just meditate differently. They have a totally different lifestyle. So yeah, the the answer is we don't really know. But I think soft science is the hardest thing to get a handle on when it comes to physiological, biological, and mental health. Interesting. 800-462-7413 is our number. one 800 Four six two seven four one three. Now, Zorba, let's see if we can help a listener in Buffalo, New York. Hi. Hi. How can we help? I was concerned about autoimmune disease. I was told that I have either rheumatoid arthritis or lupus back last April when I had carpal tunnel surgery on my right hand. And anyway, when the surgery was over, I had this huge egg on my wrist, and they said it's synovitis, Mm -hmm. and that's only caused by autoimmune disease that my body is attacking itself. And I said, well, I've never had rheumatoid arthritis, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So anyway, it got worse this fall, and my whole thumb got really swollen. Mm -hmm. My ring finger has stayed swollen, and there's like a node in my hand below Mm -hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And the thing on my wrist was really sore, and it's never gone away, and it gets very red at night. So I took the blood test. They showed my RF factor and uh, lupus are mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. but that I have very high inflammation in my blood. Mm-hmm. They said the normal person is minus 8, and I'm over 22. Uh-huh. Okay. So mm-hmm. I'm going to see a rheumatologist, Good. but I, w- I was you have concerned. Not, you have not seen a rheumatologist yet? No. It oh, was okay. both- 
But I am seeing one next week. So let me just let me let me just jump in for one second. So you can have zero negative rheumatoid arthritis. In other words, the rheumatoid factor doesn't have to be positive to have rheumatoid arthritis, and the rheumatoid factor may be positive to have rheumatoid arthritis. And the same is true for the inflammatory markers that we use, such as something called C-reactive protein and ESR or SEDRATE, and then a bunch of other very specific factors that that rheumatologists use to help determine whether or not you have it. There's a clinical diagnosis, and then there are some blood tests that do it to help either secure that you have it or you don't have it. And this is where you definitely need a specialist because these are really very specific tests that are done uh, in a complicated way to determine whether or not this is going on. Now, synovitis, you know, simply is showing that you've got an inflammation of the, you know, uh, uh, you know of, of basically what happened after you had carpal tunnel syndrome is you developed inflammation. Now, was this concurrent disease happening? In other words, that had nothing to do with the carpal tunnel syndrome or did the carpal tunnel uh, surgery actually sort of set it off? But if you have an autoimmune disease, that's where a rheumatologist makes that decision and makes, and makes that information. So you might or might not have it. Well, there were other things going on at the same time. I, uh, mm-hmm. well, what other things? Well, my husband was sick and mm-hmm. during the time he was sick and then he died in the summer of 21, oh, I lost so 10 sorry. pounds inadvertently, oh, even though I was eating and exercising sure. the same way. Mm-hmm. I don't know if these things have anything to do with each other. Mm-hmm. They might. There might be a factor here. Stress, I believe stress can certainly do things. Stress can, can set us off. If, if, our, if we have a predisposition to something and we're under stress, it can definitely do something. We know it does it with heart disease. We know it does it with stroke. We know, for instance, that people who are caregivers for somebody who is ill and sick at home roughly have a 30% increase in global death rate over the next one to five years. So we know that just taking care of somebody who is seriously ill, that's enough stress to actually produce a lot of other disease. So I'm a great believer that stress is a factor here. Sure, that could be it. The question then is, now that you've gone through that, and of course, grief has its own clock, you know, what part does stress play in a row? But the other thing is, a rheumatologist is going to look at the swelling. You've got some objective things that are going on, and hopefully it will give you the answer. And then tell what you can do for it. There are different things that are done for anyone with an autoimmune disease. But what can I do? Are there any like herbal things or other modes that I can do to counteract this? I mean, I'm Well, doing... you can. The, the answer is eating a Mediterranean diet. That's an I answer. I do that. Eating a Mediterranean diet, a variety of fruits and vegetables have micronutrients, antioxidative products. It has, you know, all these micronutrients that are important. You know, exercising on a regular basis. Uh, I do we all just, those We things. just talked about meditation. Meditation for 10 minutes once a day may actually reset your biological clock. If you're not doing that, you may want to do some mindfulness meditation and you can go somewhere or you can now do it. There's some excellent apps that work well. You know, there's a Healthy Minds app done by Richie Davidson and his group at the University of Wisconsin, which is an excellent app, Healthy Minds. We'll put that up on our website. That can be very useful too. So those things can really help. Getting your body and your mind, your biological clock, set up eight hours of sleep a night, all those things can actually help your body heal. The answer is yes. That's important. But as for supplements and other things, you know, I'm not really a big believer in supplements. I think the best supplement is healthy eating, a variety of fruits and vegetables. Okay. And I have not been doing meditation. I used to do it. And I Go back haven't. to it. Go back to it. I will. And so sorry for your loss of your husband. How long were you guys married? 54 years. No. You must miss him every day. Well, I do, but I also have gratitude mm-hmm. for a very happy mm-hmm. 54, mm-hmm. well, 56 years we uh-huh. were together. So uh-huh. I try to take it in that stride, and I still hear his voice, but uh-huh. I... Uh-huh. I'm trying to live the best life I can, and that's what he would want. Yeah, that's right. And it is gratitude. And those memories those memories, and the way people actually affect us live on in our lives and what we do with our life. So, Yes. Yeah, I absolutely believe that. Yeah, yeah, you are absolutely correct. So thank you for your call, and thank you for sharing that with us. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome. 800-462-7413 is our number. one 800 Four six two seven four one three. 
Okay, Zorba, let's crack open the Zorba Pastor on Your Health inbox and take a listener email. The following question came from John, who writes, Dr. Z, I have a fairly large ganglion cyst on the outside of my left ankle. Okay. It was diagnosed by a dermatologist mm-hmm. as well as my orthopedic surgeon. Mm-hmm. I'm getting an MRI to be sure and before the ortho removes it. Mm-hmm. Because okay. you did studies about gout, mm-hmm. I'd love your opinion on the possible origin of the cyst. Specifically, that ankle is where I sometimes have had bad gout flare-ups. And I wonder if there could be a relationship between these two conditions. Many thanks for all you do. Well, uh, that that's a very good question. So, and, and in fact, they may be doing the MRI for exactly that reason. So this may be a TOFUS, T-O-P-H-U-S. And a TOFUS is a collection of uric acid that actually can result in bumps and cysts around our body. And they can occur in many places around the body, including the ankle. And the MRI should be able to and will differentiate between a TOFUS, which is a gouty collection, and a ganglion cyst, which has a completely different collection, comes from the joint and has a collection of sort of joint fluid in there. And a TOFUS is treated differently than a ganglion. So the answer is yes, the MRI is going to give him the answer as whether or not this is from gout or whether or not it has nothing to do with gout. Hmm. Good, good thing to have done. Do you have a healthy living question for the show? Zorba is always happy. Always, to, always. To 24-7. Zorba always is always happy. happy to assist you. Assist. I will assist. Just and so will Tom. A, Tom will assist too. Just Tom's post, my assistant. I, I never helped anybody. <laughs> now, Tom is the George Fenneman can we move of along? Wisconsin Public Radio. <laughs> Let's hear That's a voicemail <laughs> from a listener in Wisconsin. I had a quick question. I wanted to know actually how Viagra or Sildenafil works within the male body. I'm not sure. Just want to get some clarity on that. And is it uh, are there negative side effects of Viagra or Sildenafil? I believe I'm pronouncing it properly. I appreciate it. Thank you. So Viagra, by the way, Viagra was initially thought to be a drug for blood pressure. And it was initially uh, in a blood pressure trial. And it failed, by the way, to actually be a good blood pressure drug. But they discovered that the men in the study did not want to give it up. And then they did some research and found out the men didn't want to give it up because it actually helped them with erectile dysfunction. So it was sort of discovered by accident. But it's a PDE5 inhibitor, and the PDE5 inhibitor works because it increases blood flow to the penis during sexual arousal. So in other words, it actually increases blood flow because it's uh, because that's kind of the way the PDE5 is one of the things that's involved in a men getting an erection. Now, does it have side effects? Sure, it does. Uh, most common side effects are nasal congestion. Uh, you can you can become flushed, flushed face. Some people have an increase in GERD. Their GERD can be a little bit worse from it. And then some people have changes in their eyesight temporarily where a white fluorescent light will look somewhat discolored. And if you want to look at the whole group, what you do is you can Google Viagra and see what they are. But there definitely are side effects. Now, are there long-term side effects? And the answer is no. We now know Viagra uh, and the other drug uh, that's that's commonly used on the market in Cialis has been around for about 20 years. Used to be like 30 to $40 a crack. It's now probably about 50 cents, 50 cents a pill. It's commonly used. And it's also commonly used by young men because they can keep their erection longer. So the answer is, yes, it works. That's how it works. And it's safe when used correctly. 1-800-462-7413 is our number. one 800 462-7413. Before we head out, Zorba, we get so many questions from our wonderful listeners, but we also get calls from listeners who just want to share a comment or a health tip. So it's time again for the segment we call Caller Comments. This is a bunch of caller comments. People calling us with their health tips. Okay, Zorba, on a past show, we were talking about the strange fact that a high percentage of the male bodies recovered from 
boat drownings had their zippers down. So, Zorba... Right, I do remember that. Yeah, you asked our listeners to send us what a possible PSA jingle might sound like that would warn the public about this phenomenon. We got some great responses, including this fully formed song from David H.B. Drake in Wisconsin. The song is titled, Safety First When Sailing. It has several verses, <laughs> but here's a small sampling of it. It's use your head, the captain said, and don't pee or the railing. Skip to the loo for number two. It's safety first when sailing. When sunlight dips below the spar, the sailor lads start drinking. And three sheets to the wind they get, not doing their best thinking. It seems the manly thing to do is stride up to the railing. And boldly drain into the main, their balance often failing. So heed the words of this old salt, don't leave your widow grieving. When comes the news you died at sea while carelessly relieving. And always wear your PDF and use a bucket midships. For better to be thought a wuss than down to Davy Jones' slip. <laughs> use your head, the captain said, and don't pee or the railing. Skip to the loo for number two. It's safety first when sailing. <laughs> I love it. That's pretty good. It. That is so, so cool, and that is so, so creative. And he used my childhood instrument, the accordion. Wow. Amazing. Do you have something to share for the show? Just post it on our Facebook page or send us an email at <laughs> Zorba at WPR.org. See you next week, Zorba. Stay well, Tom. If you missed anything during the show or anything. just want to stream the show stream online it. anytime, anytime, visit us on the web at Zorba.org. Of course, through Facebook. You can find us there, too. It shouldn't it be at ZorbaPastor.org? Oh, yeah, it should be, but it's not. it's not. Don't forget, you can call us anytime to leave us your question at 800-462-7413. Zorba Pastor on Your Health is a production of Wisconsin Public Radio. It is. It's not intended as a medical diagnosis. It's not. So please do check with your doc. Please do. You're my doc. (laughs) Our executive producer is Carl Carl Christensen. He is. Our technical director is Brad Colbert. Absolutely. Our theme music is by Leo and Ben Sedrum. That's correct. For Zorba Pastor. I'm I'm Tom Tom Clark. Clark, Asking you to join us (laughs) on the next Zorba Zorba Pastor on Your your health. Health. Did you miss something on today's show? Simply go to ZorbaPastor.org to catch up on all things Zorba. There you will find recipes from the show, links to the Facebook page, Zorba's healthy living articles, and you can subscribe to the weekly podcast. On the web, that's ZorbaPastor.org.